This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 3rd, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. How does the specter of federal regulation alter the way cryptocurrencies are offered to the public? What qualities do these currencies share with equities and commodities, and how do they differ? Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. We spoke last week about crypto and regulation. The thing I've been reading about the last couple of months that uh, seems very hot with respect to cryptocurrency is this the idea of the ICO mm-hmm. and uh, the initial coin offering and the way that these ICOs have sort of morphed over time is that they look a lot more like an IPO mm-hmm. where you have a certain class of investor can get in first and then another group can get in and then the public can get into. Why has that been the model as you understand it? Well, I think it's worth before um, addressing why they have evolved in in such a way, what really is an ICO and why it comes up, right? When we're talking about cryptocurrencies, we tend to be talking about decentralized networks in which uh, you don't have a central intermediary that's handling uh, anything, uh, but rather transactions are verified by everyone that's involved in the network. And the way they are verified is by using some sort of token that is transacted around. uh, And in the process, it confirms that the information that's traveling is all accurate and everyone is in agreement uh, about it. And so what the ICO proposes to someone buying into it is that they will offer them a token of some sort that they can make use of in the future to exchange goods and services. It doesn't necessarily have to be a payment system like Bitcoin. It can be uh, storage space. So there's a there's a cryptocurrency called Filecoin, which is now uh, um, being built, uh, and and that one will be used for storage. Uh, there are smart contracts, which are a way to run um, you know agreements between people on the blockchain and so on. So there are many, very many applications, and that's one of the big promises uh, of of cryptocurrencies in the cryptocurrency market. Uh, but so an ICO is not like an IPO to the extent that you're buying into it because you want to make use of the good or service that's offered to you. You're not necessarily looking for a profit or an investment, right? Uh, a lot of people in this space don't like the term ICO because it's, it resembles, as you say, right. uh, IPO so much. Whereas what you're doing here is you're trying to gauge consumer interest in a business proposition that you have. You're trying to attract people. And the nice thing about being able to raise money in a coin offering is that you can gauge how much people will be willing to pay for that good or service. And and at some point, you're looking for people who are willing to develop, right? Yeah, I mean, like like with with a stock, anybody, you know, the certain classes of investors are uh, limited to to or are uh, given the privilege of investing in this, and and other people don't have the opportunity to invest in that. But it seems that with crypto, what you're actually seeking are not necessarily. Uh, moneyed investors, but you're looking for, you're trying to develop a community in a way. That's right. The reason that these decentralized platforms work is that a lot of people join them. No one would want to be on a platform where nobody else uh, is, a, is a member, right? Sort of to paraphrase Groucho Marx in the opposite way. Uh, everybody wants to join if everyone else will also be using uh, this token to exchange. And so it's very important to be able to attract people and not just any kind of people, not just people perhaps like you and me who are interested in buying the actual good, but also miners, people who will be involved 
in helping to verify these transactions and do so for a profit. Now, the virtue of Bitcoin uh, and why it became so successful so quickly was that uh, it rewarded uh, people who did good for the rest of the network, namely by making sure that everything was accurate and all the nodes in the network, so to speak, were in agreement. And making sure that it's efficient. Exactly. And making sure that things were done at the lowest possible cost, they got a reward themselves. And it was very difficult to trick the system because you need a lot of computing power in order to get uh, all this agreement together. And it's very difficult for one individual person uh, to get it. So you're absolutely right that you want to uh, involve people to help develop the platform and help help improve it um, over time. Now, you mentioned uh, the sort of investors that are involved in, in these uh, offerings. And uh, it is true that presently we have... ICO is often restricted to uh, wealthy people and what are deemed accredited investors who are people who've been involved in the sector or some have some sort of institutional role in, in, in a financial institution. But that I don't think has to do with the nature of the ICO as much as with existing regulation and the fear that if you offer it to the general public, you will find yourself on shaky legal ground and maybe the Securities and Exchange Commission will come after you because they find you're a broker dealer and have been marketing products that you shouldn't to people that you shouldn't have. Okay, so that seems like a problem. It is. Uh, uh, it, it, but it, it seems like a problem in the sense that, um, you know, in order for a currency to prove itself, it does need that community of developers and people who are transacting with that currency and people who are just looking to get rich. Um, maybe the money that they're providing allows the, the payment to developers or it boosts the value of the currency in such a way that people will want to develop on it. But it seems like the – it almost seems like the wealth comes second or that it ought to and that the design of the thing is the, is the important part of the cryptocurrency. That's right. You would hope that the – speculative interest that some people have in this would lead them to also want the network to succeed. Because even if I'm just looking to make a quick buck, I have to resell my token to somebody else down the road. Yeah, so, and, so what, what I'm saying is what looks like an accredited investor yeah. in the space of crypto, mm -hmm. it seems like a very different kind of credibility, a different kind of expertise that you would need than somebody who is buying the uh, Facebook IPO or some other kind of IPO. That's right. So there's a very crude standard now for qualifying as an investor that's allowed to buy uh, in, in, in these types of offerings to be an accredited investor, right? And it's it's a wealth criterion. You have to have more than a million in assets or more than $200,000 in income. Now, that's no indication of the knowledge you have of this particular space, the interest you have in participating in the network. So you're right that it's not a, a, a very uh, accurate criteria. Of, of your knowledge or sophistication. All right. So uh, I guess that with respect to the regulatory uh, environment in which these uh, ICOs, these coin offerings are uh, being put together, what ought to change? Should, should it just go away? Should, they, should it be treated as a commodity rather than uh, some other kind of asset? That's a big question right now. We're obviously dealing with what is in many ways a new type of product. But in order to make 
it work. It needs to uh, be fit into or at least, uh, you know, it, regulators need to uh, make a decision as to what they want to describe it as. And the big question right now is uh, whether uh, crypto assets are commodities or their securities and the regulatory uh, regimes associated with either are, are very uh, different. Now, there is a specific judicial precedent that's uh, been used to decide whether something qualifies as security or not. And that's that's known as the Howey test, which is comes from a case in the 1940s. Um, and that prescribes that you have to be dealing with an investment of money in a common enterprise for profit, and the profit is done as a result of somebody else's work. Now, this is all legalese, but it's very important as far as the policy environment is for cryptocurrencies, because... Um, Arguably, a lot of them don't fit that particular definition. So they they would not qualify as securities and therefore would fall into the bucket of, bucket of commodities, which um, make them, in, in most circumstances, easier to trade and exchange and, and for more people to, to participate in these things. Now, that doesn't mean that some of these uh, initial coin offerings, when they involve uh, seeking profit and they involve somebody else developing the network for you and you simply obtain the token, those could be seen uh, as securities. And that's a conundrum that uh, a lot of these developers are facing right now. We've seen some chilling in the number of ICOs after a period that was very hot at the end of 2017. The start of 2018... And some been- of those were fraudulent. Uh, yes. And some of those were take the money and run. There was There did not seem to be any intent to build this community to build the network. Yes, but I think you're talking about if you, if you you're talking about a trillion dollar uh, market for cryptocurrencies and and only a handful of billion have been found to have been fraudulent sure, transactions. Sure. It's a very it's a very dynamic space and you're bound to have people coming in and trying to fool uh, individuals into buying things that they shouldn't buy. But, but there it, are two things to consider there, sure. right? The first one uh, is that just as people may use uh, cash for some undesirable or unlawful activities, you wouldn't ban the usage of cash by everybody else, and you wouldn't ban the usage of banks and banking services by people because some manage to launder money or use it for uh, illicit transactions. Uh, you you don't want to chill the whole system just because some chunk of it is um, undesirable or fraudulent activity. And then secondly, um, if you want to be involved in this space, there needs to be an understanding that buyers uh, n- know the product and understand what they're what they're buying into. That's the that's the weirdest thing about this is because the government has rules determining what an accredited investor is in terms of like what criteria you meet. Uh, in the crypto space, your qualifications to be uh, and in somebody who's going to be involved at the very early stages of the development of a cryptocurrency, there's no licensing here. There's no government permission slip for you to be a really credible person in this space and somebody who can create a lot of value. And it seems like the, the government regulations on uh, who can make these initial buys, these initial investments, just doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit well with what crypto is or what it does. So there are two parts to to what you just said. The first one is whether there's any regulation that right now applies in the crypto space. And I would say it does. As I mentioned, a lot of these uh, platforms are uh, following the letter of 
the securities laws because they're afraid that there would be a crackdown otherwise by the SEC. They're only marketing to investors who are accredited. And at the state level, they're subject to money transmitting laws. Uh, so they're certainly complying with everything that uh, in the foreseeable future might be deemed to be applied uh, to them. Uh, the implication, of course, is that if these people are following all these laws, then you might have less activity than you would have in a more open market in which it was clearer what these um, cryptocurrencies will be subject to in the future. Uh, but there's no, there's no question of this being some sort of Wild West um, environment. And then your second point was about... Well, essentially, that it, what makes you a credible... What makes you an accredited investor in a, in a real sense, not in a regulatory sense, is just very different than it is for a purchase of stocks. It is. And I think another misperception in, in policy conversations about uh, crypto assets is that they will focus and revolve around currencies. Uh, these decentralized applications can be used for uh, the delivery of anything um, and, and the, in transactions of anything. And precisely the reduction of transaction costs and the ability to verify very cheaply and for it to be done not through an intermediary uh, but in a decentralized way means that you have quite an improvement in efficiency and the lack of uh, the absence of fraud or, uh, or points of failure in the system. And that's all very desirable. Now, if we expect a lot of economic activity in general, a lot of the buying and selling of, of uh, goods, a lot of contracting and, and purchasing of, you know, rental contracts and the sharing economy and so on to move to decentralized networks, then we cannot use a securities framework for all of that. Uh, it, it simply would be regulatory overkill. It would be inappropriate. And therefore, we need to make a judgment as to the extent to which securities law sh should apply to something which is fundamentally a claim on a real good or a service. And if that is the case, then you should have consumer protection laws, which are a state-level concern, but not necessarily the very heavy uh, reporting and disclosure regulations that you have for securities. So what I think you're saying, and um, this may be somewhat controversial, is you know, for those who argue that the, the regulatory framework that we would use for Bitcoin, it's already there. And there are some people who make that argument that say, we don't need any new laws here. If you're saying that crypto as a general category contains qualities of both securities and commodities, um, that maybe it's a different asset class and maybe a regulatory answer to that is either don't treat it like anything, let it just let it go and we'll figure it out later, or regulators should create some new asset class that encapsulates crypto that is diff fundamentally different from these other asset classes. Is that right? There is a spectrum of crypto assets. You okay. have some which are used as currencies, some which are currently at the development stage, and therefore it's more speculative, and they might be they might fall under the definition of, of security that courts have uh, typically used. But many others are already in operation. Uh, they're being used uh, to trade among people, and a lot of the um, securities characteristics don't uh, apply to them. So you're right to say that a lot of these categories are already in existence. The job of the regulators is to decide which falls into which bucket and to do so in a predictable way. Right now, the SEC has stated that they will look at every crypto asset on an individual basis and they will make a judgment uh, ad hoc. 
that may be appropriate as far as dealing with individual uh, crypto assets is concerned, but it makes it difficult as an entrepreneur or a developer to decide uh, how to design and market your product so that you can um, make sure that you're on the right side uh, of the law. And that clearly has a, a chilling effect on, on innovation. You say that regulators should perhaps come up with a new category. Um, we could both think of an ideal uh, category that we that would very fittingly describe a lot of these new products. But the nature of the political process and of, of regulatory precedent is that we're probably not likely to end up with something that truly uh, is, is beneficial moving forward. And therefore, that's why a lot of people want to be a bit more cautious and say, well, we've got these two categories right now, commodities and securities. Everything that's already in existence and which doesn't involve uh, the expectation of profit and some sort of uncertainty as to whether the platform will uh, develop or not uh, is a commodity. Everything that is at early stages promising the efforts of somebody else to an investor qualifies as a security. And that's straightforward to many people. That eases judgment and it gives a coherent framework with which people can work for the future. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. Cato Podcast.